Welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. All right, all right. Welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. I'm here with... I think my good buddy, Matt. Is that fair to say? Fair to say. (laughs) Been on a few adventures together. (laughs) We have. We have. We've been out west. We've been down south. And you drove past my place to go for a turkey. So that kind of counts, too. And then you're coming turkey hunting this next year. Hopefully, hopefully. Which is going to be cool. But uh, Matt is just a ridiculous resource for whitetail management and i just thought this was going to be such an important podcast because some of the stuff you've told me with all the places i've been throughout just i guess my life going to some pretty awesome whitetail spots or having friends that are just whitetail fanatics um some of the stuff that you and i have talked about i feel like are totally new to maybe some of the ways at least people in the Midwest or people that are managing properties up north where I'm from kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I think it's very region specific. You know, we're in South Texas, which is a differently a different uh, soils, different atmosphere, different land ownership, you know, large private tracts of private ranches, you know, so you have control. But some of the management techniques we use are applicable to other regions of the country. I think it's important because for me, when I first started, like started hunting on a family's place down with my uncle and my grandfather taking me down in Mississippi and in the deep South, you know, it's hard, it's hard to, to have a place where it's somewhat managed, I guess. And I don't think I, I don't think we really man it, you know, did any type of management when I was younger. And then, um, you know, my goal through like, once I had my first job, it was, knocking on doors getting permission so i didn't always have to be in public and then it was the first the very first piece of land i ever bought was like 2.9 acres and i hunted that you know and for me i felt like this was freaking awesome i got my my own land and then the next piece i bought was 10 and then the next piece i bought was 40 and i remember like when i got the three i thought this is gonna be awesome i'll be able to hunt my own spots i can leave my stand in my tree and then when i got to 10 um i actually killed like a pope and young deer every year even on 10 acres because i kind of relied on the neighbors but then i had this belief that if i could ever get bigger than that i could start managing and when i got to 40 acres i kind of started thinking about like i should let that buck go and then honestly i realized it just seemed like an impossibility and then you know as i've like kind of flipped to turn over to like a little bit bigger piece a little bit bigger piece a little bit bigger piece now i'm in my mid 40s and i remember having this conversation with bill winky and i said at what point did you feel like you could manage deer because he was up to a thousand acres a continual thousand and bill just said i thought i could manage when i got to 500 i thought that's what i really need to manage and he said and then i realized after a few years i really had to have a thousand and he said now that i've got a thousand i feel like i really can't truly manage unless i have three he goes it'll never stop so i mean i definitely want to get into that but first let's talk about some of your your street creds you're wearing your auburn shirt yes sir people can't see Uh, well (laughs) i'm from the southeast as well originally from around selma alabama grew up hunting family property as well you know so i'm very familiar with the kind of maximum sustainable yield is what Alabama operated under when I was growing up. So it wasn't the number of points or inches. It was how many deer did you kill this year? Mm-hmm. And my granddad, he would kill 10 or 12 deer a year, but he would fry them every time for church cookouts, everybody's birthdays. That's what we had was fried backstrap. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all that was put to use. And that's kind of how I grew up hunting was just, hey, if it's a deer, kill it and we're going to eat it. As I went, got into high school, you know, I got interested in more of the wildlife biology and had the opportunity to go to Auburn University and study in the wildlife and forestry program there. 
And from there, I took an internship out here in Texas. And once I come to Texas, it's just been a game life changer. Yeah. The management that you can do out here was unreal. So I went back and finished out my undergrad at Auburn. But the whole semester, I was talking about everything they were doing in Texas when I was here for that internship. Yeah. So that got my foot in the door with Texas A&M University Kingsville uh, at the Caesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Facility. And that's where uh, I did my master's degree and had the opportunity to come back to South Texas and work on two very well uh, private ranches that were funding a research project looking at different densities of deer, protein feed versus non-protein feed, just kind of all aspects of how these deer were, different densities of deer, number of deer per square mile were affecting brush, protein consumption, Not you know, we, we were looking at a bunch of cool things, so that's kind of where I have, and then after that I left for a year and did a few other things and then had the opportunity to come back and actually work for one of the ranches that I did my master's work on. So do you feel like there's a big difference between what you're learning here and what people can apply in the Midwest? Just because obviously if people, there's times where even within the hunting community, they watch, they watch like Texas hunting and it's just so different because in the Midwest, I would never like set up the same. I would, I would, I would never have like a feeder on like a timer where like you're building a routine like that. But there's also times of the year where even if you have protein, even if you have a mineral, even if you have, even if you do use corn, um, depending on whether it's legal in your state, it just seems like up there because of the natural foods that are more readily available and, and the grain and the crop, it just seems like they're not near as kind of predictable or maybe even needed. I don't know if it's if yeah, that's the right word. Alabama, but. you know, has recently allowed baiting within the last two or three years. They just legalized it. And a lot of my friends and family talk about, you know, when the white oaks are on the ground, when the acorns are on mm-hmm. the ground, they will not come to a corn pile. Right. You know, they're eating other stuff. And I'm sure it's the same way in the Midwest where yep. you have standing crops beans and corn they're not as readily going to come to a a protein feeder or a corn feeder yeah Uh, in south texas it is a little bit different just because our dry season kind of our stressful time is late fall where most of the southeast and midwest that's when they're having acorns on the ground well all of our plants are dying like all of our the cactus puts out its fruit in the summer so that's a big masting time a lot of the mesquites put out beans so during the summer they actually don't eat as much protein as they do and other aspects of the year like september is one of our largest we do do supplemental feed on part of the ranch uh we work for a forty thousand acre property in south texas so it's large private landowner we lease out to other groups of hunters and then we actively manage like thirteen thousand acres of protein fed where we do supplementally feed during the summer and september going into the you know the bucks are coming into the last of their antler growing and the fawns and does are producing a lot of milk for the fawns that's actually one of our highest consumption periods whereas you know in the midwest if there's acorns on the ground or standing crops they're not going to be coming to a feeder yeah yeah out of everything that you've done i mean based on what i'm seeing here and i have a little bit of background knowledge just because um harry was really fortunate to intern with you guys so harry got to come down for a research project that you guys have been doing for quite a while but i feel like now that i'm seeing it is it safe to say it's like one of the i don't know for me it seems like it's like one of the most perfectly orchestrated like research projects like ever right now the data that you've shared with me just kind of a blip on the map just seems way more intuitive than i would have ever thought was actually being done yeah we work extensively with texas a&m university kingsville some of the professors over there dr hewitt dr d young uh, a new professor that just got hired on dr mike cherry is coming to us he got his phd at georgia um and with their permits, we've been doing this research project. I think we're in year 14 of a project where it started out looking at two different types of management between a control pasture where we were just kind of doing our typical South Texas management and then our research pasture where we we're using a permit through Parks and Wildlife, Texas Parks and Wildlife, to kind of look at some breeding aspects of white-tailed deer. And within the first three or four years, we saw that the our research project was was working and the antlers were getting bigger from kind of selective breeding we were doing in that pasture with culling and whatnot and then um, 
over time it's developed more into looking at differences in age structure yeah so we're looking at we, what we do is we tag 15 to 20 fawns in the control pasture and 15 to 20 fawns in the research pasture as fawns so we know exactly how old they are so we have known age deer mm-hmm. you know we're not using teeth wearing age which there's some you know differences i don't see in that. how that's like consistent just based on what they eat all the time no and I, I, the, my biggest comparison i tell a lot of the the hunters that come here is like look at a group of high school seniors they, they all the same height and weight or have the same cavities yeah they don't so why does everybody expect deer to yeah uh you can be right looking at a deer on the hoof you know that's what we're trying to do is can you look at certain things at a deer on the hoof and tell exactly how old it is and you can't you can get close yeah you can probably get an age group like a three to five year old but 100 percent of the time you can't look at a deer and say oh that's a four-year-old deer based on our research project i guess i'll tell a little bit more about that um what we're doing is every fall uh, in South Texas, we have, uh, for capture, we can use a helicopter net gun. So we have a subcontracted company that comes out with a helicopter. If you haven't ever seen it, you should YouTube it. It's pretty neat. But uh, we can catch up to 80 individuals a day using this helicopter capture method. And what we're doing is we're bringing these deer in alive. We're taking antler measurements, pictures. We're taking body measurements such as weight distance from nose tip to eye tip between the eyes uh ear tip to ear tip neck circumference stomach circumference and what we're doing is we're comparing between these age classes yep you know we're looking at four-year-olds versus five-year-olds and is there overlap so that's kind of what we're hoping to do is relay that out to managers or guides or hunters out in the pasture you know when a deer comes out can you look at the face or the ear tip to ear tip or the you know the chest circumference, which a lot of people use down here, their stomach circumference, can you tell the difference between a four and five-year-old? What we found out is most of the time there's overlap. So about 80% of the time, you know, maybe you can be right and that is a four-year-old, but you might be shooting uh, a really good three-year-old that's four-year-old. Or you might be letting a four, something you think's a four-year-old go and then, you know, actually be letting an older five or six-year-old that's kind of that body structure over overlaps on that. What did you find out in relation to um, kind of mortality? The mortality stuff that you've told me was probably the most fascinating for me because because you're doing this project so long and the deer that you're capturing and then kind of keeping them within this, you know, this this research area. The next year you catch them, you're getting new data the next year, the next year. So what have you found for if a deer is born or a buck is born mm-hmm. what's the chances of that deer living a full life if it's totally unharmed for you know when it comes to if it was just mother nature right we have these deer born as fawns so what we've been able to do is follow them throughout their life and we're not hunting these deer if they have tag in their ear that deer is protected for life from us as long as we're doing this research project doesn't matter the score or antler type or any of that we're going to let it live because that's what we're part of it is this mortality study so what we're finding is the greatest mortality is from fawn to one i mean it's pretty hard on them if you you can get uh i think it's around 70 percent survival to one years old so it's like 30 percent of them die yep between fawn and one and so that's kind of high for some research studies in this area but we do provide supplemental feed uh, 300 days out of the year in this pasture we are turn the feeders off for two months to hunt and kind of yeah manage the deer that aren't tagged in that pasture but i think having that greater supplemental fed for longer a lot of people down here feed deer from you know from february through september and then they don't fill their feeders again because their hunting season runs from yeah. our mld season which is a special permit in texas runs from october to the end of february so I think that helps get our fawn mortality lower than other neighboring ranches. Mm-hmm. But once they hit one, like it's a little bit higher mortality from from zero to one. But from one to two, it's like 85 to 90 percent of them will make it to two years old. But yep. once you get them to two years old, if you don't hunt these deer, natural mortality is almost non-effect, non-factor because... I think from the latest studies we're seeing, we just completed a project that Harry was here for in October. I think it's like 96% survival from two to three and 95 from three to four, four to five. All of that is like above 95% survival until you get to seven years old. Seven to eight is still in the 90s. And then eight to nine, you start to see some mortality effects. 
So these animals, like I said, we never hunted them. We take any out that we accidentally killed to capture. If we accidentally do shoot one, you know, that's not counted. This is just strictly natural mortality. And really, it's a minimum natural mortality because the way we determine that a deer is alive from one year to the next is we either recapture it with this helicopter capture or we have game cameras that we run extensively for you know two weeks out of the year in the fall and we read ear tags from these game camera pictures so when i'm saying 95 percent, that's the number that we know was alive there could be a couple deer that are alive that we didn't see in pictures or we yeah. didn't capture so that's a minimum survival so it's really really high and that's high even compared to some of these other studies in south texas uh, but i think that's because we feed intensively in that pasture but basically you know where we can use that with other landowners or other managers is say you have a five-year-old deer and you want to give him a year but oh, there's a risk he might die mm -hmm. well actually if you don't kill him you know if you have enough control or think he's going to stay on your property there's really little risk in letting him go from five to six yep. or say you know a six-year-old really nice deer and he breaks the tine and you want to give him another year we're saying that you're really safe in doing that until you reach about eight years old and then we start to see a bigger uh, increase in mortality i think from eight to nine it's like 25 percent don't make it to the next year and then from nine to ten we're really starting to pick up that mortality a lot from up around 50 percent of them don't make it from dang then nine to ten you know that type deal and does it stay at 50 like 10 to 11 what's the oldest you we've got we're supposed to have 13 year old deer out there we've only seen one 12 year old deer this year so it seems like from 11 to 12, it's almost for our, the older age classes have a smaller sample size. So it's not statistically significant yet. We're working with the university to work on the statistics for all this stuff. Yeah. But, um, it seems like for us, we haven't had any deer make it past 12, but with other research projects I've been involved with, with the university, I know we have some 14 year old does that were tagged as fawns and were part of a research project that lived 14, 15 years in the wild mm -hmm. you know but uh for us so far you know we have a couple 11 year olds well we've got like six 11 year olds out of like 20 that we tagged as phone so it's still pretty good but it's yeah. not you definitely start to notice it you know what what do you feel like is the peak age for antler growth we're looking at that right now south texas is a very different environment than the midwest because summer spring and summer rains affect antler growth in south texas because the vegetation where yeah. our average annual rainfall is around 22 inches a little less 21 and you know and when we get wet summers there's more vegetation and more nutrients going into the vegetation because it's it's green right and uh it swings but i guess that's kind of beating around the bush on average it's usually around five to six is where we see the deer on average peak but we have outliers we have some 10 year olds that we've been catching these deer every year and 10 year old is their best year dang but that's an outlier you know yeah. the average i would say five to six and one real cool thing we're working on now one of our guys that helps with the stat statistics has found that once deer hits five and six it really doesn't change that much from five to six six to seven like their frame their general bnc it swings a little bit definitely but it doesn't have vast swings on average yeah but like i said we'll use outlier examples i'll have deer gain 20 inches in a year and that's known that we caught them one year let them go the next year catch them and they were 20 inches bigger do you think that percentage is based off like the nutrition or the nutrients just because of the rains more so than the age once uh, they hit five I think some of that, and then there's also some social issues. We run yeah. a higher deer density than some other ranches around because of all the supplemental feed we provide. So I think, you know, when you get a lot of mature bucks in the area, it could just be more than likely it is nutrients and rainfall. That is definitely, we see a jump in wet years. Mm -hmm. But also there's a lot of social dynamics that we can't study in this larger pasture where, you know, one deer just might not have access to a food because several other older bucks or mature bucks are keeping him pushed away yeah. and then one of them dies or moves to a different area and then that deer gains 20 inches well could be rainfall it could be just stress factor just stress factor yeah so i mean in a perfect scenario if you've got a five-year-old deer if you've let something get to five if you you know if you have a history with a deer where you know it's at five if everything's perfect when it comes to stress and even in the midwest having rains at the right time and, and the right crops you feel like someone that shoots something at five is i mean 
do you feel like there's a benefit for someone trying to wait till six or seven? I know that there's people that do. And I guess from my, from my point of view, I feel like, I don't feel like the deer mortality is what I'm worried about. You know, it's pretty rare unless EHD comes in, but like the amount of deer that I've had history with, that got hit by a car or something like that. It's, it's just really small. It seems like other hunting pressure is definitely the biggest factor. So you just have this thing go through your head of, you know, am I going to pass this, this buck? And if, you know, I've, I don't have any places that I hunt where I know if I pass that deer, I know he, like he's safe at any time a deer walks past me. I know it's not safe. It's like, it could be on another property within a minute any direction so like none of the you know i don't have any of these places that are massive tracks they're all a bunch of kind of smaller farms that put kind of the essentials there i think it's very property specific i don't think you know like i said we're region specific on a lot of our management prescriptions but there are other things that do go out to the rest of the midwest and southeast and different parts of the whitetail country um the reason you know that we can let deer go from five to six is because we do have own such much so much acreage they really can't leave the property you know mm-hmm. there's some deer on the at boundaries that we you know the neighbors and stuff but luckily we work well with our neighbors and everybody in this region that's our neighbors really their goal is not to shoot any trophy animals until they're at least five yeah so there's very little risk of us letting a deer go and, you know in the midwest you can't do that and in the midwest deer generally mature faster because of all the nutrition from um beans and the crops and just the soil in that region where i think there's a lot of studies that show that in the midwest five year old is a, the best antler year for for whitetails in some of the midwest states if um, if someone's limited on how much like financially how much they could supplement when it came to like feeding like a protein or something like that i've got friends in oklahoma or when i had a i had a lease in oklahoma so we fed protein there um is if if you have a limited budget to where you could really only afford to feed for let's just say a few months or up to like six months from like a growth and deer herd like health point of view what would be the best times to pick definitely the antler growing period and and uh you know we feed a lot of our feed everybody likes to talk about you know the protein helps grow the big antlers but just as important to us as fawn crops mm-hmm. so whenever your does in your region are gestating and and lactating for their fawns i mean that's very critical i mean then we think we get just as much of that out of our supplemental feed program as actually you know boosting the antlers because antlers are a secondary trait you know when you have extra nutrition that's what it goes into but the fawn rearing you know that's that's very critical so that I think, you know, it just depends on when your rut is. Uh, down here in South Texas, our rut is right around Christmas, so our fawns are born July through mid-August. So, like, we supplementally feed, you know, a little longer than everybody else. But we try to get the deer back in February post-rut on feed as quickly as possible to help some of that post-rut mortality. And then we'll heavily feed through September. But after the antlers harden and some of our does are starting to wean late September, early October, then we don't feed as heavily because, you know, we can but it's not getting the benefit so whatever region you're in i think you know in the early ant- stages of antler growth would be very critical because we've seen some stuff it's kind of like if you stunt uh, agri- uh cattle you know if you if they're grown they're kind of limited on what they can eat and you stun them they'll never catch up yeah so whitetails are the same way i'd rather have them in great shape going into antler development than trying to uh, build back up their body fat after post rut and then you know because they're i would assume just i know for me like (laughs) honestly getting close to the end of a hunting season here i'm to the point where my body is telling me i need like to eat cleaner and yeah you know i've i want to bounce back too and i think i feel like if i grew horns my body's probably going to put it to the most important places before that anyway even if i'm in that right that growth phase so i mean is it fair to say with white tails I've, I've always assumed it but i've never like scientifically asked is it fair to say if they come out of a really hard winter where there's a lot of stress factor even if like you know they've got big velvet nubs on their head and they're starting to grow if they're lacking in just overall body health 
I would assume they're going to put it there before they would really put it to the antlers anyway if they can't. Exactly. That's why a lot of I think in the Midwest y'all see better antlers when it's a light winter mm-hmm. because they're in healthier shape going into antler development. And yep. South Texas is like that as well. And that's why, you know, certain ranches feed throughout the rut, cotton seed or some other supplement. You know, we don't do it here because it's kind of just not our program. But I know of some ranches that feed cotton seed year-round, which is another supplemental feed. It's about 15% protein. But they'll feed that just to kind of help with the post-rut mortality and, and keep the bucks in good shape, you know. Uh, in South Texas, I know there's some older studies without before supplemental feed and you know post rut mortality can really hit a deer herd hard yeah and um especially with a one-to-one sex ratio which is kind of what we try to run because there's a lot of competition mm-hmm. at that you know if it's four does one buck the bucks really aren't fighting because they all have access to breeding but when you run one-to-one there's a lot of competition there and we we were here two years ago and we found a set of bucks locked together you yeah know? so there mm-hmm. is rut mortality and post rut mortality when uh when you don't have these deer in great shape, you know. What do you feel like it's better for if you're try if you're if you are focused on the management of growing as big of antlers as possible? Is that one to one ratio more important for that, or is it more important? Like, what is the purpose behind that? Because I've heard kind of conflicting things on yeah I what think, you should have for does. I think it's region specific. Again, I hate to keep saying that, but like you know, South Texas is unique that we can do that a lot of places if you're hunting smaller properties in the midwest and people only have a couple deer tags mm-hmm. you know they're not going to hammer does uh they're yep. not going to waste them on does as much so you probably can get really skewed i know in alabama used to be you could shoot a buck and a doe a day for like 80 days of the season it was unreal back when i was growing up in high school yeah and now they've lowered it down where you can shoot a doe every day and then uh, only three bucks a year and so that has kind of helped get the sex ratio back because people still want the meat and they want to have har- harvest opportunities. So that's kind of helped the sex ratio. Because when I was growing up, we run cattle. We had a lot of ryegrass in the winter for cattle feed. We might see 20 deer on a pasture, but only three or four bucks, and the rest were all does. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty common probably with what I would see Yeah, as well. So I think the state you know, has changed some of those regulations to kind of get that sex ratio back to one to one because when you have a wide sex ratio you know then your rut actually expands you have a secondary rut because the few bucks can't cover all the does yeah and that's pretty common when when i left um when i left at the it well it was the end of the archery season it was like you know the first part of december and then once it's gun season i leave like wherever i'm hunting and just kind of monitor from cell cameras really and the amount of bucks that i saw even in december that were you know a month later really you know dogging and and tending does was honestly i felt like it's higher than i ever knew but maybe it's just because it seems like with cell cameras you get like instant feedback of what's going on whereas when you're trying to review stuff back um something that's two months ago you know if i go and pull a card and then try to check what was all happening you're not like seeing stuff from multiple locations within the same kind of time period where you're like oh there's a buck tending a doe here and a buck over here that looks like he's tending a doe you don't realize like how much of that secondary rut comes into play now one of the thing i want to stir the pot about too is just like your cull you know your like your culling philosophy because there's been a few things that we've said in conversation where i was a little bit surprised at how you look at culling deer um and then also like during that capture i remember you guys caught a smaller buck and i I forget what it was i asked you something about like your thoughts about a basket rack or or like versus a spike or something you were you kind of told me your philosophy on you know if a deer looks like this when it's young that's like we have data that shows what that deer is capable of how did that work i'm trying to remember yeah um well one thing you know culling is a big management tool in south texas people call bucks pretty intensively starting it you know all the way from spikes to two-year-old eight points three-year-old eight points 
because they think they can change the genetics in an open pasture in a herd in a herd of deer and we just don't think that's our philosophy we have some pretty strong data uh that you can't change genetics by hunting by rifle hunting deer there was a really good project put out with mississippi state uh a and m kingsville done at the comanche ranch uh, ranch nearby uh qdma has it on their website but you know showing that they tried to call these pastures over years with helicopters with intense culling and they just weren't changing the antler structure i think the average bean boone and crockett over 10 years of this culling you know they would capture deer with a helicopter and age them and if they didn't didn't score the right they would call them you know whatever the criteria was but after 10 years of this intense management they couldn't change boone and crockett average boone and crockett scores on that so we don't think you know we pretty much show that you can't do that with rifles because you can't call as intensely as they could with doing this helicopter capture yeah and one of the reasons for that is you know you can't tell bad genetics in a doe you know and you can't even tell bad genetics by looking at antlers antlers are a secondary trait so just because a buck has a 180 inch rack you know a big 12 point typical doesn't mean that all of his offspring are going to have that we've got some pretty strong data in some of these capture projects where we got dna on a lot of these deer so we know who's the dad who is the sire of some of these bucks and just because its dad had a 180 inch rack doesn't mean that some of his offspring won't be a basket rack eight point you know that scores 120 how often does that happen fairly often i mean it's it's on average their their offspring might be a little bit bigger but here's the problem you can't control the doe mm-hmm. so you know if you have four kids you know all your kids aren't going to be the same height and weight with the same parents yeah so i mean deer are going to be the same way um it's called breeding value you know and that doesn't really seem like it's too inheritable like there were some studies i believe on the king ranch where the one of the bucks that they had dna studies this was over a 12-year project as well that some of the the best offspring they traced it back to who the father was and they had caught all these deer so they kind of had known scores and ages on some of these deer and the best offspring come off of like a 130 inch eight point what yeah because like i said just because you're showing an expression phenotype doesn't equal genotype phenotype is what you express so if you have 180 inch antlers that's what you express but that doesn't express your genes so you know your all your offspring aren't guaranteed to have that or maybe if your the deer is just 180 inch you know their offspring are taller than them or a larger rack than them you see it with people you know some parents are five foot tall and their kids are six foot tall so that's phenotype versus genotype type deal so do you really know what to call no and that's one reason it doesn't work in an open population you know we see once you get into deer breeding you know that's kind of big in certain regions of south texas when you control the the mother side the doe and the buck you can do some things really quickly because you're controlling both sides of the equation but regardless of what you do on the buck side you're getting half of your genes from the doe so in an open population of herd you can shoot all the eight points you want but there's a reason the average Boone and Crockett score for this region, we're in region eight of South Texas through Parks and Wildlife, they're regions of, of Texas. The average Boone and Crockett at a five-year-old deer is 130 to 135, depending on rainfall. Mm-hmm. So wet years is closer to 135 and dry years is closer to 130. And that's the average. And they, these deer evolved here over you know hundreds of years and that's just the average. That's what it's going to be. Yeah. And... So there's a reason it's always coming back to that, you know, the does and that. So I do not think that you can go out with a rifle and cull. What what you end up doing is you change the standing crop, which is the deer you see at the end of the year. And I know ranches down here, their philosophy is they do cull heavily, but they've been doing it for 20 years and they're still shooting eight points. Yep. If culling worked, eventually you would think you wouldn't be shooting any more eight points. Right. You know, but because the doe side keeps pulling it back to the middle and it seems like an eight point is probably the most common well there's been two times where i've heard culling kind of commonly for sure eights like Mm -hmm. especially in the midwest where you know people are it seems like the standards getting pushed up you know it used to be like you really wanted 135 inch deer and then now it's like people really want to be able to see multiple 160 plus inch deer Mm -hmm. so it seems like even people that i know that have a good 
quality farm even in Iowa so the heart of the heart of everything they still try to find someone that will come shoot a five-year-old eight they're like I need that out of my gene pool yeah and I hate that that term uh, bad genetics based on antlers you know uh, what we found is some of our mortality on some 180 inch to 200 inch deer that we've been lucky enough to grow here Sometimes that mortality is a little higher than what we were showing in that other research project because this is in other pastures of the ranch out in there. You know, it's harder to escape from coyotes when you have a 20-inch, 24-inch inside spread and trying to run through this brush. Mm-hmm. Uh, we found one deer, unfortunately, dead this year that grossed over 200 inches from coyote mortality. Well, most likely, you know, was down here they get picked clean pretty quickly. But yeah, it's kind of hard to, to say that that's genetically superior when survival might have been hindered by having a big rack because it takes so much yeah. energy to grow a 200 inch rack too yeah that maybe that animal was weakened just from the growth part of that yeah it makes you wonder if that's why like mother nature brings that right back continually to the yeah brings it back to like you know the first hunting camp you were in it was just this picture of a either a perfect eight or a perfect 10 like right. i don't remember back in the 90s and you know well late 80s and early 90s i don't remember going into hunting camps where there's bucks with like double droppers and right kickers and stickers and it seems like non-typicals were just like what they're named it was very non-typical to see that and i know that that's becoming more like wanted by the end consumer the hunter right. um, especially the trophy hunter but well, one thing i know you'll get questions on is you know what about spikes should we shoot spikes that's, yeah well that was the other one that's a campfire question you know and uh for our ranch you know it depends if we're overpopulated with deer through this research project that we're doing, uh, we have some really neat data that shows we've caught a bunch of spikes as fawns, you know, caught them as fawns, the next year they were spikes, and then we followed them throughout their life. And the largest spike we've had was in the 170s. So, you know, that is a trophy. Yeah. But on average, they're way less B and C scoring throughout their life than non-spikes. Three, four point, I think four-point plus is kind of our break. Spikes or three-pointers are, are less scoring at a maturity than four point plus yeah as a as a as a yearling as a one-year-old so getting back to what i was saying is if we're overpopulated with deer which happens down here just because our fawn crops aren't steady like the midwest you pretty much have a steady fawn crop but rainfall like i said that summer nutrition affects our fawn crops drastically we can go from 70 percent in good years closer to 100 percent in good years all the way down to couple years ago we had a 20 percent fawn crop and a drop dang so we're going to be missing the age class later on so our philosophy on zone spikes is kind of if we had a really good fawn crop the year before and we have too many deer we want to reduce our numbers we will shoot spikes but if the year before we had a 20 percent fawn crop and our herd you know our whole total herd density is kind of where we want it we're not going to shoot spikes because even though the research shows that those bucks at older age classes score less boone and crockett you still want those deer on the landscape i mean we we don't do we do a few commercial hunts but it's majority is the landowner it's their friends family uh business clients their guests and they like to harvest deer you know when people come to south texas we hunt hard and they like to have the opportunity to shoot 130 inch eight point you know at five years old so like i say we don't call those but thinking we're doing anything genetically we we uh let those spikes get to an older age class just because the guests enjoy them more hunting those deer at four and five years old is a big eight point or yeah you know 100 well, they know they're shooting a mature deer a mature animal yeah exactly yeah. so what about uh what are the bucks what are the traits in a first rack buck to where if someone even in the midwest was wanting to quote unquote manage and try to do what they need to do for a quality trophy what's like the definite no-no a four corn or a six point yeah i don't know if there is one our data it's it, we're looking at outliers you know it's not the average i mean definitely i would not recommend shooting anything six points or better as a one-year-old because more than likely that is going to follow it throughout its life but do you see that's the, the region and crockett like the true 180 plus are they always no greater than a spike at one no well yeah greater than a spike because like i said i think our best spike ever was one in the 170s okay but 
the one and two year old antler racks really don't show what they're going to be when they hit three that really shows their potential mm-hmm. so that's another reason that some people are going to argue that culling works well culling we say can't work because you don't know what the antlers look like at two and three and yeah. if you're starting i mean at one and two so if you're shooting two-year-old eight points well you don't know that really could turn into something at three and here's the other thing if it doesn't have a ear tag in its ear that you don't know how old that deer is so you, you know you're shooting oh that's a 8.2 year old well sometimes you're shooting a three-year-old yeah three and a half yep. or maybe even a really great one-year-old and yeah. that's when you really might be screwing up yeah and affecting you know your your standing crop stuff at later on in life so um from our data what we're showing is that when they're at three then if there's something i mean this year i think our best three-year-old scored in the 150s that deer we're going to follow and more than likely throughout its life is going to be one of the true outliers probably 180 plus yeah you know at maturity hopefully yeah well is there things that you see people do commonly where you feel like that's just a big misconception or a big mistake like what's the one thing where when you talk qdma with someone it's just there's a common denominator of that information is not delivered the right way what would that well, topic be one is a spike issue that's a campfire talk every camp i've ever been in you know i go home to alabama at christmas and holidays and all my fa- friends and family ask about it because you know but in alabama our rut is so late it's in february that i think like 80 percent of yearlings in alabama are spikes mm-hmm. so if you shot spikes in alabama you'd kill your whole age class you wouldn't have any bucks yeah i mean that that's one thing there um yeah, I mean, there's that. Differences in supplemental feeding, you know, everybody, I know in Alabama in some regions, they've tried to do it with a sack. Well, you know, food's not limited in some areas of the country. Like the Midwest, you know, with the cropland and stuff, yeah. it's very rare that food's limiting. Mm-hmm. Even in South Texas, we have really high nutritious brush. In a wet year, they won't eat as much supplemental feed. They would much rather eat native brush if yeah. it's available. And one of the limiting factors here is water. So we have a water trough. Very, we ha- we have cattle as well. So we have water dispersed across this ranch. You know, in areas where we don't have water, we definitely see fewer deer. But um, yeah, in other regions of the country, you know, it's still people talk about you know coal bucks and think that they can change genetics in the open population. And just from all the research projects I've read, I don't I don't know of any that kind of are showing that right now. How what have you found when it comes to like? how much a deer would will become visual like to a camera have you had some where even though you know they're here you know they're in a research pasture you never get a picture of them even though the sure. picture's like right on the main food source or the only food source but they just find alternatives for sure and i think that goes back to some of the social issues mm-hmm. um you know in texas we are allowed to bait and that's one of the heavy ways we do hunt on the on this ranch and we have deer what we call cornheads that every time you go to a stand that deer is going to be there almost every day and then just this week we had a guest kill a deer with archery that um we had pictures of him back in september late september early october we haven't seen the deer again until last week yeah. and just when it got cold cold front the ruts kicking up and this deer started coming out and we started seeing him you know, we're lucky enough that we got to harvest him this last week. And, you yeah. know, we hadn't seen that deer in person. It's the first time we've seen him all year. And we had sat in these same areas and stands probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 hours throughout, yeah. you know, throughout the season. And he just finally decided to pop out. Yeah. But on game cameras, yeah, we, you know, we run a lot on our supplemental feed, our protein feeders, and on our corn feeders. And there are definitely deer that we don't see. I mean, it's, I don't, it's, hard to say a percentage probably less than 10 percent but there are deer and I, you have to wonder is that a social issue or is that just you know certain deer might not eat as much corn and stuff I, I personally think it is just because there's times where i've had deer that i've been hunting and i've kind of waited to the right moment to hunt them and felt like okay if that i know that deer's in this area i'm not going to apply any pressure when everything's right i'm going to I'm going to try, you know, it'll be perfect to just, when everything's right, to be able to rattle or, like, you know, call. But I've had deer that were for sure the the biggest deer that I knew of in the area that cringed when they heard, like, 
fighting, you right. know, or like a battle. You could just tell they they wanted no part of that dynamic at all. And there was there was a couple bucks I remember in particular that I hunted for multiple years, and I made the mistake a couple times, and then just realized like I can never call to that deer. I can't rattle at that deer. If I rattle, he goes the other way. He doesn't. He, he's very singular. You know, he likes to pull does and then take them to a very specific kind of low-key breeding area where he can right. t- he can tend and he can kind of guard, but he also, like, has escape routes. But he tries to, like, peel away from that whole mess. So it seems like there's definitely going to be deer where you're never going to see him on camera. Right. Or... You know, you're certainly not going to see them on camera if you're only on a food source. You're more likely to get those deer on, like, you know, a, a well-trafficked corridor where it's more of a pass-by rather than right. a come-to. Well, I'm sure you you see it, and we definitely think certain deer have personalities. Now, whether that's a putting a human trait on them or not, but certain deer are just harder to hunt than others as far as getting on a pattern and, and personality some of them are bullies like mm-hmm. we were out here watching we watch deer extensively i probably spend we've got three or four hundred hours in the fall you know in a deer stand watching deer because uh we just had one of the owners was after a deer a couple of weeks ago and we had to set up three bow blinds within about 400 yards of each other because this deer just wasn't social mm-hmm. he was there when it was just a few deer but as we had we're feeding that area heavier and as we were hunting more and more deer started showing up and that deer just would not come in Mm -hmm. so we kind of moved in and added some stands where that deer kind of spread the deer out and finally he was able to to get him to come out in front of him last question i have for you um my area has been hit hard and i know a lot of the areas in the midwest have been hit really hard with ehd over the years and i actually heard you talking about this subject when we were out in Utah together for elk mm-hmm. and you were talking with with that ranch manager just about like these age gaps that happen when there's times where either you have like high mortality from a bad winter kill right. or you know for me let's just say EHD year or a year where you know we have large party hunters for, for in my area for gun hunting so there's times where they would rather just shoot a rack than not than shoot a doe, right. you know. So you you also just see this like lineup of everything from a spike to you know. It just seems like it's you go from small to like there's one nice one, but there was certainly no like holding back. If it had horns, then it needed to get shot. But with the EHD year, I think even though we had a hard year, people were kind of worried about you know next year is going to be really bad and the next year wasn't great but honestly it felt like for me i felt like the biggest gap wasn't the following year i feel like the biggest gap in like trophies was probably about the third year all of a sudden i just realized like i'm not seeing as many mature deer there's like the occasional like old 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 one and then just this a lot of this young stuff but there was like this big window in between so how do you feel like those types of gaps like how do you recover for that or what's the time frame you know it's going to be three or four years for mature animals because of fawn crops we see it in south texas with bad drought dry years if our fawn crops 20 percent, we're going to be missing the age class you know, in four years from now, we're looking at harvesting some of our management type deer, which would be mature deer, you know, in the 130s, 140s and less. And then... So you're tr- saying you would have deer. 20% less. You'll have 20% less individuals. Yeah. If, you know, or if your average fawn crop is 70% or whatever, which is kind of what we are on a good year, 70 something percent. So it's a third less. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, you know, a third of what you would normally see. Yeah. So there are gap years, you know, and like that. And I think with EHD, I'm not sure if it affects younger individuals, maybe, and maybe that's why. Some of the newer strains are killing does and fawns. Yeah. Like originally, it seemed like it was mainly mature, old, like the more mature deer and especially the bucks got real hit really hard but i know that in these past few years there are fawns and there are does that are showing that same thing too so and we're on the very tip we have had a couple touches of ehd but nothing that would affect the population you know i found 
10 or 12 deer around a pond a tank down here in what we call a tank in south texas but uh maybe that's why you had that gap maybe some of those older mature deer have survived dhd and they yeah. have a little immunity to it i yep. know if you ever see hoof hoof sleuthing or yep. kind of reindeer feet yep that's a sign especially in the midwest they probably survived dhd right and those deer probably have some uh, immunity built is, up in is there. there a percentage when it comes to fawns does versus bucks it's roughly 50 50 but i think it's slightly skewed towards bucks there's been some research done on that uh I think QDMA has some stuff on there too, and I think I know at Kingsville they've done some in South Texas where, in dry years, it's actually slightly increased the buck foam ratio, maybe up to fifty three or fifty four. You know, one year old bucks when they have to disperse, that's like I said, that's their biggest time for what our research is showing is from fawn to one. Yeah. So maybe in a hard, hard year, you know, it's going to be hard. So maybe the does somehow are just instinctively going to throw a few more buck fawns out there in a drought do buck fawns after their first year do they always get dispersed like how far will the mother like disperse them out of that region i've heard mixed reviews on that it is very widely ranging it's kind of like home range sizes you know i've been told in alabama the home range size is anywhere from 300 acres to a thousand acres you know and it's kind of resources what's available in the midwest it might be even smaller with newer, I think it's bigger where I'm at. Newer data with the GPS collars, these research techniques where they can put these collars on these bucks and follow them mm-hmm. for their home range size. I know there's one study on the King Ranch that was done by A&M Kingsville where they had bucks. It's been in QDMA as well, where they had bucks that home range size anywhere from like 800 acres up to 3,000 acres. Yep. So, you know, it's very variable on that. And yeah. I think that's resource. The better, the better, you know, if you can manage your property for sanctuary and food, yeah. there's more likely that food water covers. What right. I tell the, everybody the deer's home range is going to shrink. Yep. You know, And I mean, I tell people on the flip side of that, if you're not a manager, but you have limited resource of what you have to hunt, the best thing you can do to have a better shot is to figure out what the neighbor is lacking. And even if you can bring in one of those elements, right because they need the three so if if you know your neighbor has very limited water or it's a drought year sometime building a tank system to where there's just a water on a small place can be productive sometimes places are all about food and it's just super you know super uh grain consumption or there's water readily available but the cover is limited and especially once minimal pressure is applied the limited cover then becomes no safe cover so having cover could be the most critical or if you just have places where it's huge pieces of timber especially like north you know up north wisconsin Mm -hmm. and in minnesota where it's massive timber amounts um sometimes just doing the work to where you have food within that you know a food source a food plot your focus is way better on that than it might be on timber management you know you'd be better off just having the food source but yeah that's dude super good information i know we're on a limited time but you are all right an awesome resource and we'll make sure we get matt back uh in the spring when we're whacking turkeys do you like to blow their face off or are you gonna shoot the bow i'm a shot i'm a running gun shotgunner (laughs) but (laughs) you're bringing your bow (laughs) that's it i can do that too (laughs) all right knock on everybody be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com